Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Okay, so let's see here. We're already halfway through May. How is that even possible? I have no idea. It's crazy. It's blowing my mind. So I'm still up in Northern Virginia. Uh, I might be traveling down to Atlanta sometime soon to see my sister. We'll see. Fun. Lauren, you're still down in Florida, right? Are, are you dying of the heat down there? No, I, I love it. I mean, we have a pool. So, like, I love when it's hot because that just means that I know that eventually at the end of the day I'm going to go in the pool. But unfortunately, my time in Florida is running out. I plan on driving back up to D.C. on Saturday. Oh, wow. Sad. Yeah. Sad to see that time come to an end. So but it's going to be good to have you back up here. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm excited, you know, to get back to my apartment and, and my life back up in D.C. I have miss the city. And I think one thing that I've been doing, uh, you know, as I'm anxious to get back and, and kind of into a new routine is I've been crafting and I've been crafting like new stuff for my room. So I did this like spray paint canvas. It's really cool. Uh, that has like a heart on it with like a cool pattern. And then I did one with an inverse. So, you know, hashtag super artsy, call me fancy. Ah, uh, <laughs> And then I um I photoshopped all of our family pets. So like oh my, my cat recently passed, my sister's dog, and then my parents' cat. And I like did like this like little pop art kind of scene where their eyes pop and they're kind of down in the corner. And I'm getting those frames. So I'm just you know I'm excited about that. But mm, so many good things. But Virginia, I hear that I'm not the only one who's been trying out some new things. How is your garden? Well, uh, when you say garden, you mean uh, one tomato plant that's not it's not doing so great. It's a garden of progress. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm hoping there is progress being made. I'm going to blame it on the fact that it rained like three days in a row, and I think that the little seeds might have drowned. Um, I'm I'm optimistic, but I'm trying to be uh, safely optimistic. I will say I've had much more success with the vacuum cleaner (laughs) that I uh, mentioned I ordered last week. So it arrived and that was like the most exciting part of my day yesterday was getting to use the vacuum cleaner. And uh, I will say the, the rug in my living room has probably never looked better than it looks right now. Uh, so, you know, really exciting things during COVID-19. Really exciting. Really yeah. exciting things. <laughs> All right. But Lauren, we should get started before I start talking about how clean my baseboards are right now. So I've had coffee. I've already eaten a brownie today. I'm ready to get going. Lauren, what is up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Air Force veteran and conservative political activist Anna Paulina Luna about being a woman in the military. And in the wake of Mother's Day, we take a moment to say thank you to all our wonderful mothers and to chat with my mom. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or ratings on Apple Podcasts and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's dive in. We are joined by Anna Paulina Luna, conservative political activist and a retired Air Force veteran. Anna, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. 
So tomorrow is the anniversary of women being allowed to serve in different branches of the military. So we're really excited to talk with you about your military service. But first, I just want us to to take a minute to talk more about who you are and learn about your story. So Ana, you are a Hispanic American. You were raised by your mom in Southern California. Could you just take a minute to share a little bit about your childhood with us? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's always interesting doing the political crossover because I feel like so many people, especially in this really digital age, you know, try to put on this front that, you know, they're just these perfect people. And I find that when you really own who you are, when you own your childhood and your upbringing, it actually allows other people to connect with you. So um, I found one of the most powerful things has been for me to really talk about that, to give people a little bit of insight as to why I'm so passionate about what I believe in and really why I believe in certain policies. So what a lot of people, you know, off first glance looking at me might not expect is that, you know, I grew up in the welfare system. Uh, my mom actually had me at 20 and she chose to keep me over an abortion And it was really us on our own from the beginning. And my entire family, not just on my mom's side, but my father struggled with a very severe drug addiction that really took him away from me a lot of the time. So not only did I have this kind of chaotic upbringing, but I knew that I really did want to make a change. And I thought at the time that I was going to do that through medicine. So I overheard that the military would pay for medical school and pay for school in general. And so without telling my mom, I went and talked to a recruiter and I enlisted. And I told her about a month before I was supposed to leave that I would be joining the military. And it was really the military that kind of launched me into what I say success as an adult. It gave me that structure that I really didn't have in a family life. And it was through the military that I was able to excel. And I tell people even to this day, you know, I will always support the military for that reason. It was a huge um, factor in setting me up for success and really enabling me to help my family as well. But, you know, you don't always have to have that victim mentality. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. And it was through my hard work and dedication to my family and to myself that I was really able to change the outcome, I think, of my own life, my family's life, and future generations. So that's why I'm very passionate, and that's why I share my stories, because I think that more stories like that need to get out there. And through my work with Prager, we're hoping to really connect with people on that deep personal level and really stand up some great voices to help save this country. What was going on in your head when you were 19 and joined the military? I think, you know, a lot of American youth are kind of in this arrested development and and they feel like 19 is a really young age, but that was a really big commitment to make. It was a super big commitment. And, you know, because it was really just my mom, me and my brother, my sister, um, we didn't know of anyone in our immediate family that had been in the military and actually wasn't until... I got out that I found out some of our extended family had either gone to Normandy or had been in Vietnam. But at the time, I, you know, I want to talk to a recruiter. I actually want to talk to an army recruiter first. And I was supposed to join the army as a, a medic. And then I went over to the Air Force recruiter um, prior to me going to MEPS, which is where you do your in-processing before you leave. And the Air Force recruiter is like, I think I can get, you know, a better gig. Let me tell you about what jobs we have available. But, you know, when you're so young and you don't really have a lot of that guidance that I think some people have, um, you really don't, I think, understand the magnitude of what you're about to do, especially when you join the military. So for me, you know, I went from being in L.A., 
kind of a different lifestyle to really joining the military. And then that was it. Like I was gone. I wasn't at home around my family. I wasn't at home around where I grew up. I was in a completely different world. And for me, um, changing that, taking me out of, you know, a place of comfort and putting me somewhere new where I had to excel on my own if I wanted to make it, that really builds character. And that was, I think, where I really started to grow as an adult was, you know, during those early years in the military. And really today, it's weird, but I only got out of the military two years ago. So I really still do have um, a close tie to the military community because so many of my friends are still actively serving. Wow. Oh, so amazing. Anna, we want to play just a short clip of an interview you did with PragerU talking about your time in the military. Let's take a listen for just a moment. The military is one of the best things that a lot of times people can do to get out of really bad situations. And it deeply almost angers me when I hear people say that the military targets minorities and that it's not a good thing because not only was I able to help myself and really as an adult get the guidance and the structure that I needed to really excel, but I was able to also help my family. And I think that for someone like myself, I mean, what other place in the world can a young woman join the military and then help their family to the point of like, really like making changes that impact future generations. And I think that that was something that I will forever be grateful for the military for. And when I still talk to younger kids, even kids in, from rough areas, I'm like, hey, look, you should consider joining because for me, it was life changing. And I don't regret that decision. So Anna, let's unpack for a minute just a little bit of what you say in this clip. You mentioned that your service changed not only your life, but also really empowered you to be able to affect the lives of your family members. Can you just explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So my mom, again, going back, she was a young single mom. And a lot of what we did, I mean, we were in the welfare system. She was very much so, I think, dependent on, you know, different loans um, and sometimes government assistance. But when I joined the military, I was able to not only send money back home, but, you know, in instance, I think I talked about it earlier, but I was able to help out my dad. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that my dad was homeless for a little bit. And it was, again, the military giving me a job, a stable form of income, taking care of me completely that I was actually able to move my father out to Florida and was really, um, I think, one of the first times in his life that he truly stayed clean and that he still is. And so, you know, had I not done that, had I not been able to send money back home um, that would help pay for my sister's art lessons, and then later on she was accepted into one of the best art schools, not even just in the world, but in the country, um, you know, all of these things people don't realize, but like sometimes, you know, you never know who's going to be the one to reach back and really help out and make changes. But it was that team effort to where I was able to kind of provide the air support for my family that we needed that's really impacted and made changes. And frankly, um, you know, my sister, she didn't just go on to attend this incredible art school. I mean, she's there on scholarship. And it was because I was able to help my mom out, help send her to those lessons. My dad is now sober because I was able to move him from a place that he was in a very dark area to an area where he could focus on his life, get his life together. And, you know, I don't have a perfect family and I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, you know, through hard work and dedication that you can make those changes. And sometimes you don't realize how much a, something as small as me going into a recruiter's office would help change the next 10 years, next 20 years and outcomes of your family. But here I am. And it's really resonated with a lot of people. And I'm not just the only one. And so you meet a lot of people in the military 
that are from all walks of life. They're from, you know, sometimes the inner city of Chicago. Sometimes they're from well-to-do families. But the one thing that brings you together is your sense of purpose to serve the country, your uniform, the fact that you are away from home and that the military, your sergeants become your parents, your, you know, younger enlisted members become your brothers and sisters. You spend holidays together and that deep form of bonding can really help um, especially people like myself who didn't necessarily always have that. So I still to this day, I know this is going to sound like a military recruiting ad, but I'm a huge fan of the military. And, you know, to tie this to politics, I feel like you have so many politicians that, you know, say they want to help out veterans, um, but they don't. And they know that veterans are great for photos, but they don't genuinely have that passion and drive to really help um, represent veterans, focus on veterans issues and take care of our service members. And I, you know, I hope to help other leaders stand up so that we can be advocates for the vet community. So what are some of those ways that we can be advocating for the veteran community? I'd say right now, you know, especially in regards to how many people are now coming back, um, you know, you have less than 1%, I believe, the numbers of the U.S. population now having served. And I think when we're talking on issues, and this is something that's even in the military community considered really taboo, but the topics of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, you have so many people that that word in itself, that term disorder, they don't want to be branded with that. They don't want to be labeled with that. And they don't want the stigma that comes along with it. And so sometimes people won't get the help that they need because of the fact that they don't want to be in that category. But what ends up happening is these people become isolated. And because of that, that's when you have um, the higher instances of even suicide with post-traumatic stress disorder. So what I say is if there's a way that you can one, like let's say you're the owner of a company, if there's a way that you can give back to veterans organizations, do it. If there's a way that you can hire veterans, do it. But also to if you're friends with a veteran, ask them how they're doing, you know, ask them about their service. A lot of people don't realize that sometimes just having a simple conversation to take the time and say, hey, how are you doing? I know this is a busy world. Everyone's on their phones all the time. But having that intimate conversation, that does make a difference. And even now, you know, here where I live, I work with different veterans organizations. And even though, you know, I'm still doing the political circuit, I reach back and I try to lift those around me that I know are going to help further veterans causes. But um, I'd say right now, one of my biggest goals is to really help change the stigma nationally of what post-traumatic stress disorder is, and then also ensure that people are making sure that veterans' rights aren't being, you know, thrown onto the chopping block in policy. And so um, I love what the Heritage Foundation is doing with veterans. I think it's incredible. And um, I think that we need to be the voices sometimes for those that might not, not not want to speak up on these issues. And so that's what I talk about. Sometimes I talk about the uncomfortable. And um, I think that that's needed right now. It is needed. No, we all need to be made a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. But Anna, you know, one of my favorite things is just to sit and listen and hear the stories of veterans, veterans like yourself that um, have served their country, have sacrificed. Uh, are there any stories that you want to share today that are just really reminiscent for you of your time in the Air Force and what it, it means to you to serve your country? Um, there's a ton, but I'd have to say, you know, one of the one of this one of the things I'm never going to forget is my first sergeant. So uh, my the first sergeant that I ever had. Um, that I really connected with. His name was Sergeant Haywood. And actually, to this day, I still keep in contact with him. But, you know, this is kind of when I realized, like, wow, this the military is showing me something. I had, like, my adult moment, right, um, where I realized the military was teaching me some things. And, you know, you had Sergeant Haywood, and he was from, 
Inglewood, which is in California at the time, a really rough area and still somewhat is. But he became my sergeant and you had me, which people a lot of times look at me and they, they assume a lot, right? Like I'm kind of tiny. They probably think, you know, I'm, I'm just hanging out at a Starbucks with a you know mocha latte <laughs> and ugly <laughs> fun. Um, but, you know, he was from this really rough area and, you know, I would talk to him at work and, you know, we would hang out. And then after work, I finally saw him and I realized that I was kind of judging people based on how they dress. And I didn't realize that Sergeant Haywood... Um, you know, was from the opposite side of town as me. But, you know, it was a military uniform that brought us together and it enabled me to look past that. And so that was, I think, kind of my one of my first growing, um, mentally growing experiences. But the other the other thing that really stuck with me was um, in 2014, my husband was shot in Afghanistan. And so at this point in time, I really didn't, you know, understand, I guess, what the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder was. And, you know, the military will constantly give you CBTs. It's called computer-based testing. Um, and what it is, is it's basically PowerPoints where, you know, you check, walk, you go through the training. And so you had a lot of people that would get the CBTs or there'd be slight mentions of it, but no one actually um, who had gone through an experience of what it was like to have a family member go through that or a community go through that. And what's been really unique is that my husband is an Air Force special operator. So what his job is, is combat control. And when he was shot in in Afghanistan, you know, I knew that he would be physically okay from where the injury was. But when I showed up to Walter Reed Medical Center in Maryland about a week after he had been shot to meet him, and I was going through the hospital and seeing really what happens after war, it wasn't this glamorous thing that Hollywood makes it out to be. It wasn't like in, you know, the movie Pearl Harbor where it's this, you know, epic um, positive love story. You had a lot of these people that were coming back um, physically and mentally in pieces. And when it showed me that, and I saw what was happening to the community, what these families were going through, what the service members were going through, and then how certain people were really afraid of, I think, reaching out to get help. It really changed my outlook. And what was I doing on social media? What was I doing in my own community as a military member, as and then later on as a veteran to really help you know, shed light on this issue. And I realized at that point that I needed to be focusing and, you know, making this a topic of discussion so that farther down the line, I could help people like this that were coming back and dealing with it. And I ended up actually um, later on writing a book about really what my husband and I went through during that recovery process, because so many marriages, so many people just didn't want to talk about it. It was this like private, you know, elephant in the room that I think people were going through and didn't even realize that someone next to them might be having those same experiences. And, you know, my husband and I, we got through it and it wasn't easy. It was very difficult, but we made it and we're stronger because of it. And we now talk about it to help really other married couples that might be struggling with similar issues, especially, you know, in regards to what's faced in wartime. But um, that was something that will forever have changed my life and, and really forever, I think, changed the objective of what I've, I'm choosing to fight for, especially on veterans issues. I think that's what I love about you, Anna, that you always want to take your experiences and really help others with that knowledge. You met your husband while you both were serving, correct? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I had um, joined with zero intent of, you know, getting, I wanted to just go to school and, uh, you know, like kind of a Beyonce song, like young, independent female. And I met him, not even kidding, like eight months after I joined and we got married a month after we started dating. So it was very quick That was <laughs> years ago. Oh, wait, you got married one month after dating? We got married one month after dating. Wow. So 
friends for a little bit prior and then we started dating and you know he always jokes because he busted out of the friend zone and um but yeah it was 10 years ago and I look back at that and I was only 20 years old when I got married so so what was that like you you were newlyweds and both in the service which I imagine is a lot and then you know you mentioned the, the major trauma that that your relationship went through and even now that you've transitioned to civilian life and he's still serving what has been married to a service member been like well, I, I tease him all the time, you know, especially when it comes time to get water before bed. I'm like, I went through, you know, five combat deployments or four combat deployments. Go get me water. <laughs> um, I, I, go, I tease him about it all the time. But, you know, it's one of those things that I always tell people it's really important, especially if you are in a relationship with a service member, to make sure that you're friends first, because that kept us through all of the deployments and all the hard times and, you know, injuries and training and you know my husband was in a unique job especially as an active duty member to where he was not just deploying basically every six months but then in between the times that he was deploying he was going through training so like he really wasn't around a lot but I stayed busy with college and I was able to get my degree done uh, my bachelor's in science and then I was able to continue to move forward and and really focus on my family and and just kind of keeping the house redecorated ever so often. So I stayed busy, but it is important to have a good network of friends. It is important to be friends with your service member before anything else, because that keeps you together through the hard times. Such good life advice. <laughs> Thanks, I still can't get over, you married your husband one month after meeting him. That's so awesome. I know we, it, you know, we didn't necessarily advertise it either to people because I think like we just knew people would be like, what? <laughs> um, especially now, but you know, eventually when we did announce it, we actually ended up going to India and like we quote unquote eloped in India. Oh, and we actually had this like secret marriage for a little bit. And then I uh, went to India. That was just kind of like, you know, I'm, I like to keep my relationship. Um, I guess, you know, I'm very vocal on other issues, but I like to keep my relationship kind of private. So we've been, um, very fortunate enough to kind of have a really energetic and traveling spirit with one another. So when it came time to like actually say like, where are we going to do a wedding or what we're doing? We went to India and had a blast and I uh, didn't have to worry about wedding planning. So <laughs> that's so awesome. <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. Love your story. Well, Anna, now, you know, since you left the military, you have become one of the most prominent Hispanic conservative leaders in our country. What kind of reactions do you get from people when they find out that you're a Hispanic American and yet you're very conservative? Well, so it's interesting because I get two completely different like reactions from those that are also conservative Hispanics. It's like, finally, you know, like I align with you. You're like me. You're like, oh, thank God, you know. But when it's from very liberal, um, most of the time Democrat, Hispanics, you know, the first thing they actually bring up is my skin color um, and really, really racist undertones. You know, I've been told, oh, you're too white to be Hispanic or you're only half Hispanic so that you don't count. And, you know, I know that that just for them is coming from a place of ignorance. And so what I always like to say is, you know, Barack Obama was half white and he's considered the first black president. And, you know, with me, you can't just box, especially um, the Hispanic community into just one category. You know, we're all we're not all short and speedy Gonzalez like and I don't run around with a maraca and a sombrero to just prove how Hispanic I am. But I can say that, um, you know, on the back end that you have a lot of people that I think have really been programmed to think that being Hispanic is a certain thing. And the fact is, is that the Hispanic community is very diverse. You have 
Cubans, you have Mexicans, you have Puerto Ricans, you have Dominicans, you have Colombians, you have Guatemalans, you have so many people from so many different areas. And the one thing that you know brings us together, especially in this country, is the fact that we have ideas that align with the Constitution, that we're conservative, and that we're Americans. And so really when it came time to kind of uh, title the show for Prager, we wanted to really focus on that. You know, like you have so many people coming from so many different backdrop, backgrounds to talk about what their American story is and that, you know, we don't agree with identity politics, that we're here to really bring this discussion to the forefront and say, you know, you can't say that because someone's Hispanic that they have to vote a certain type of way and you can't take a community that's really faith-based and has conservative values and try to change that because at the end of the day, we all remember where we came from. So um, I think... In regards to people's reactions, I mean, my close friends are not surprised. <laughs> they, they all say the same thing. I'm like, well, we knew you were going to do something great. But, um, you know, when you, when you come to some of the people online that are really empowered by hiding behind their phones, it definitely does, I think, change um, their level of what they'll say to you. And, and people can just be mean, but I don't sit there and I, I don't dwell on it. I don't read through every negative comment. If people want to be fine, that's great, or be mean, that's great. But like, I don't have to sit there and subject myself to, you know, abuse. And so I don't. And so, you know, people act like that, then that's their own thing. But I'm not going to give them the time of day. So it's been, um, it's been mixed, you know, from people that are conservative, you get positive, nothing's ever brought up about my skin tone. But when you get, you know, a very liberal person who happens to be Hispanic, even maybe sometimes less, less Hispanic than I am. Um, the first thing that they bring up is my skin color and it's very racially driven and it's almost sad because that's, if you're focusing on my skin color and not the things that are coming out of my mouth, that's how you know you've been programmed. Yeah. Wow. I think it's uh, Taylor Swift that said, and the haters are going to hate, 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 hate. So you just keep doing what you're doing. So I want to bring it back to the reason why we're, we're talking today. And that is that tomorrow is the anniversary of women being allowed to serve in different branches of the military. What does that mean to you as a female veteran that, you know, women for a long time in our country, you know, couldn't easily serve in the same capacity that you did? It's, you know, having gone through the military training and having, you know, done my job and and served my country, it's a weird concept to think like at a certain point that women weren't even allowed to serve. Um, But then you kind of look back at historically, like you had the Women Air Corps, the WAC, and then uh, seeing really how women have helped kind of change the service um, as as a whole. And I can say that, you know, I'm very, very proud to serve. And there's just something about joining the military that really has given me, I think, the confidence that I need to now excel in this political arena. Um, But looking back at that, I mean, it's something that I take great pride in. So to imagine that I wouldn't have been able to serve is, is just a weird kind of foreign concept to me because it, it makes up so much of who I am, even now that I'm no longer in. And, you know, my job in particular, I did airfield management. So my it's called an AFSC, but that's your kind of your category of learning. So it was one Charlie 751. And I actually worked to do flight plans for pilots. So in the sky, you have basically invisible um, roadways for airplanes. And so you have to work with FA to block those out. And then I did, you know, inspections for the airfield. I worked side by side with uh, many pilots from fighter pilots to gunship pilots to the stealth bomber. And, you know, I also helped do arrivals and departures of some pretty high level people to include at the time Vice President Biden. And I can tell you that with the military, you always want to make sure that you have an administration that really supports the military. And there's something to be said about 
the morale now in the military under Trump, which is through the roof versus at the time, you know, even back in the day with Obama and Biden. And having been there when Biden came through, I can tell you that for sure, I am very excited that President Trump's in office, because when you have people going to fight your wars, you want to make sure that um, these people are taken care of. And the Trump administration does do that for military members. Well, Anna, we're certainly so thankful for your service and for all of uh, the incredible individuals who have made that sacrifice and that decision to serve their country. Uh, there is so much that we are forever indebted to you all for. But Anna, last question I want to ask you. This is a question that we love to ask our guests that come on the show because we get so many different answers. Do you consider yourself to be a feminist? Yes, no, why or why not? So I think the modern day term for what a feminist is, is really changed um, over, over time. I would consider, you know, I, I support women. I support strong, independent um, women in the workforce, whether it's the military or politics or any other capacity. But, you know, the one thing that I think that the modern day feminist movement has really targeted is men. And I don't understand that, you know, you can be a strong, independent woman for, you know, pro-life causes, for women empowerment, but you don't have to hate men in the process. And, you know, I love my husband. I respect him. I love my father. I respect him, even though he's not perfect. Um, But, you know, I feel like that that's really been hijacked. So when people, you know, ask me that question, I think in, in the true what initially feminism started out as, Um, Yes, I would be considered a feminist in that sense. But what it's been hijacked and what it's become today, um, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, that type of feminist, the type of feminist that really targets men. And so I say that I still will promote, you know, what I believe in. I will still fight for, you know, women um, in any capacity and really for being, I think, a good role model for the younger generations. But I don't think you have to hate men in the process. Anna, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, you guys. And I'm really excited to hear this once it comes out. Let me know and I'll post it. All right, we're going to take a quick break because I want to tell you all about a great way to learn something new while you're at home during COVID-19. The Heritage Foundation is offering webinars multiple times a week on topics ranging from the economy to the pro-life movement. And every single webinar is free. You can visit the Heritage Foundation website and click on the events page to sign up for any of the webinars. I know I am particularly interested in the one next week on China and U.S. relations moving forward coming out of COVID-19. It's going to be really interesting. Okay, let's get back to the show. So as you all know, Sunday was Mother's Day, and hopefully you all got to talk with your mom on the phone, or maybe even spend some time with her in person. I'm back down in Virginia, so I did not get to see my mom. She lives in Boston, but my siblings and I did send her flowers and talk with her on the phone and tried to still make it special. But Lauren, you're down still with your family in Florida, so you got to spend the day with your mom. Did you all do anything special? We did. We had a really fun day. We woke up and we made breakfast sandwiches and we just kind of relaxed. The park near us opened up, so we were able to go for a long walk in our favorite park, which we haven't been able to do for a while. Mm -hmm. And then my uh, sister and brother-in-law came over with the brand new baby. So we just kind of spent the afternoon laying low and hanging out with the baby. And then we had a, a really great dinner. But Virginia, I have a surprise for you. What? My mom is actually with us right now. What? Mrs. Evans, welcome to the show. Thank you. I can't believe I'm here. (laughs) I'm so excited. Oh, it's so great to talk to you. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Since you're here, 
I have to I have to ask you a question. I need to find out some insider information on Lauren. Oh, <laughs> bring it on, Virginia. <laughs> so Lauren always talks about this rebellious phase that she went through uh, kind of in her in her teens or early 20s, maybe in college. Do you remember that phase at all? Uh, I didn't know it was over. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, um, I have to say, middle school probably was the most rebellious. Okay. Uh, nothing illegal or anything like that. Um, just her confidence level, I think, hit the roof. <laughs> um, I think my husband and I were challenged by. Um, how to discipline her at that point because she really was smarter than us by then. I think looking back in middle school, one of the times we did try to give her a, um, a timeout or actually it was a grounding uh, of an entire weekend because of some incident. Um, it happened to be a weekend that there was a middle school dance. So, so Lauren would not accept that because it was going to interfere with her robust social life that she did have in middle school. So she brought home a petition signed by about 115 students. Oh my God. That big of a middle school she went to. Um, and I looked and every signature was a legitimate signature. <laughs> So at that point, I kind of looked at my husband. And I said, "We have to embrace this about our daughter. She's 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 definitely creative, and we did not ground her, and she got to go to that dance. Um, maybe part of me thought I should have followed through and grounded her, but then the other part of me is she is the person she is today because of those types of things that she did then." I don't have trick in the book. PowerPoint presentations, <laughs> petitions, whatever I could do to get out of trouble. Petitions really work with me for some reason. So. <laughs> it's a little activist from a young age. Oh, my gosh. Lauren, how have I never heard that story? That is priceless. Oh it's just not the same when I tell it. Yeah, no, it's true. It wouldn't be the same. <laughs> well, I thought it would be fun to talk to my mom. She is a high school uh, it's not home ec. That's not politically correct anymore. Right. I am a family consumer science sciences teacher. So <laughs> a family consumer science teacher. And she is beloved by her students. You can just tell by the texts and the phone calls that she gets. So I just kind of wanted to talk about what it was like, that transition from being with your students. And, and you guys were actually on spring break when the decision was made to not be in the classroom anymore. How have you been handling moving to remote learning? Well, not being very tech savvy myself, uh, that was probably the biggest challenge to me going to e-learning. But that I've overcome. You know, I've been able to, I think, do a really good job with it. Uh, it, it does have its um, good points as far as I have probably spoken one-on-one -on -one with a lot more of my students uh, than I do have time during the day, or some of them are very reluctant to talk one-on-one -on -one with an adult when their, their, their friends are around. Some of them do, but others, you know, are a little bit maybe um, more shy uh, around adults. So I've, I've been able to Zoom one-on-one -on -one with some students who I feel 
you know, need that extra emotional support. Um, I have been able to email a lot back and forth. And um, I think more academically, um, I, I've offered more um, emotional and social support to a lot of my students and then helped, I would say, 10% of my students found it very challenging, still are, finding it challenging to do work uh, independently. They really need that teacher every day uh, saying, you know, this is due, where is that? Um, so those students, I've, ha I've tried to help them with strategies, um, not just in my class. I keep tabs on all of my students in all of their courses. They now all know, because I've told them, that we can see everything. We don't just see their uh, grade in, in, in our class. I see their grades. So I've, I have texted people and said, I can't help you with geometry, but what's going on with geometry? I see you only have a 22%. Or when is the last time you texted that teacher and asked for help? And so those types of things, I feel really good being able to be involved in their lives and just help them in general um, with with this time. And a lot of them, unfortunately, don't have the best support at home. So just to offer that. Um, and last week was uh, Teacher Appreciation Week, and I just got such great, great feedback, not just from um, students, but parents, parents that I hadn't even met this year emailed me and told me how special I was in their child's life. And it was just very uplifting and I wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing. I'm looking forward to being back in the classroom in August and seeing those kids walk through the door, but it's, it's turning out to be, to be good. Well, and mom in um, February, you and dad were pretty much empty nesters in a way. And now Virginia and I have talked a lot about that, you know, we've moved back home for me at, at 30. What has it been like going from, you know, kind of a quiet house to now it's me living here for two months, uh, my sister and her new baby here most of the day? Like, is it crazy? Has it been fun? Both. Can it be both? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I absolutely love it. Um, but yes, life has changed so drastically. I do like to go to bed at night with a clean, empty sink and counters wiped down and everything. <laughs> and now every morning I come out and I'm picking up uh, toys already. And she's only three months old. I don't know where <laughs> the toys are getting. I think Lauren's moving them around the house. Uh, pacifiers, bibs. And then I pick up the baby things, too. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, but... In a, in a wonderful way, you know, I think, oh, my gosh, how did I do this full time with three kids of my own? But again, it goes back to when you when you don't have that and then you have it again. It's like, oh, this, this is this is wonderful. This is a blessing. I'm I'm so lucky and I'm I'm going to savor all of this. Well, mom, it's been really fun to have you on. It's, it's been fun to be home for you know the past few months. Thank you so much. I am going to miss her so much when she leaves on Saturday it'll probably be like when I dropped her off at college I'm just gonna have to trick her and <laughs> and not let her see me be so sad um, she has a wonderful life in DC and I'm happy for her to get back to it and the great work you all do up there um, but I'm truly gonna miss you and it, it has been a, a, a wonderful couple months easy, easy, enjoyable. Um, we get each other and Mother's Day, 
was just the ultimate knowing I have such a great daughter and we have a great relationship. So, and who, who could ask for more than being on Problematic Women? <laughs> thank you so much for having me in Virginia. Great oh, to talk with you. Finally. Mrs. Evans, thank you so much for coming on. We certainly all love your daughter. I find it just a complete joy working with Lauren. So thank you for letting us have her in D.C. most of the time. So, uh, man, we, had, if I knew that you guys were going to say so many nice things about this, <laughs> I would have had my mom on way earlier. <laughs> Thank you you so much. Oh, it's so great. All right. Well, stay tuned, everyone. Up next, we're going to be crowning our problematic woman of the week. And I think you're going to find that what she has to say is very helpful. Hey, guys, it's Lauren. And if you guys didn't know, on top of my job here, co-hosting the Problematic Women podcast, I also create content for The Daily Signal. And one piece of content that I'm really excited is coming out next week. And that is a documentary that we did with a woman named Sue Ellen Browder. Sue Ellen has such a powerful story. She worked for Cosmopolitan back in the 1960s. She saw the inside baseball of how really the sexual revolution permeated the women's movement and all of the impact that has had on American society today. I really implore you guys to check it out next week. We're going to talk to Sue Ellen. You know, you have those works that you're really proud of, and that's this one. And I would really love if each one of our problematic women take the time to go and watch. All right. Well, it is that time again, time for the crowning of our problematic woman of the week. And this week, it is none other than Dee Dee Chisholm, the founder of Bella Natural Care and Wellness. Dee Dee, congratulations. Thank you so much. And <laughs> and um, it, that, it's so it's so cool. And I do want to clarify that I am the co-founder with my daughter. I could not have done any of this without her amazing brain and her support. I love that so much that the two of you together really set out on this journey uh, and have created such an awesome resource for so many women and you're serving women in need and, uh, and really just practically being a support for them, obviously both in that medical field, uh, but then emotionally and just being a support and a listening ear. That's huge. And I love that, that you've talked about that, that you really uh, approach medicine from that holistic standpoint. Um, so I did want to ask you, you know, as as young women in our 20s, 30s, 40s, what are some of the things that we should be doing right now to ensure as women that we have good health or better health in our you know, 50s, 60s, 70s? It's such a great question. And also because the time goes so fast. If we're if we're living our life well, if we're being all that we were created to be, um, that isn't like just sitting around, like being a couch. That's participating in the world and and bringing us, bringing our very best us, and that means strong body, mind, and soul. And so when we think about body, what are what are you know? What are the main things that we need to do to to be strong and healthy? We we need to um, look at what we eat in a world that's toxic. We have a toxins in our processed foods, toxins in our soils, toxins in our air, toxins in our water. What are the things that we can do? We don't need to go crazy. We don't. It's you know not everybody has the time nor the means to make sure absolutely everything is clean all the time. So what can we do that's within our means? And that's going to be 
just look at the things in your life that are inflammatory. Um, inflammatory uh, foods, for instance, sugar is one of those processed foods. You know, there are different inflammatory foods. Decreasing, having moderation is so, so important. So looking at those ways to set your body up to be healthy by eating, eating well, eating a well-balanced diet, recognizing that, you know, oftentimes food just comes down to math. You know, you can't, you can't take in 3000 calories and burn 1200 calories and not think you're going to gain weight. So there has to be some common sense with the math, but common sense with what you're eating, drinking plenty of water. It's important to understand too, that unless we're on living on an organic farm and we can have grass fed meats and organic vegetables and milk and whatnot, sometimes we need to supplement so that we can get good vitamins and minerals into our diet. And I think that, you know, having a good uh, supplement that, that you can kind of source, you know, where it's come from um, when you're taking it. And I, I hear a lot of times, what are, what do we absolutely need to take? What should people take if they, if they are going to supplement? Because you look at, you know, at the supplement counter and it's ginormous. Women need calcium. So if, if you're not getting, you know, your milks, cheeses, yogurts, things where you can get calcium, that's an important thing. But what's, what I always tell people is that if you could only get one supplement, I'd get a probiotic because your gut is the boss of the body. But if you can get two supplements, I would get vitamin D. Now, there's lots of studies, and I think COVID has been a great moment in time for everyone to understand that that vitamin D matters. And yes, vitamin D from the sun is great, but that probably is not quite enough. And so what they had found is if people did not have vitamin D deficiency, so it's not saying that you have to have the best vitamin D, but if you just don't have deficiency in vitamin D, those people had much more mild symptoms when it came to COVID-19. Now, that's just one example of how important vitamin D is in our overall health. So um, I feel super strongly about vitamin D. I think a good overall balance in, an, in a multivitamin is important, but I think your probiotic, um, your vitamin D, zinc, also very important in day-to-day uh, health and wellness, your omega-3 fatty acids. So those are things that um, I think are super important in your in your day-to-day from a supplement standpoint. I think that everyone should be a, a, a lifelong learner. So we talk about body, mind, and soul in your mind. Be a lifelong learner. Try to learn something new every day. Part of that speaks to our own humility that we don't know everything. And in addition to that, it just keeps our mind active and busy and find things to do. And if you are in a sedentary moment, especially if you're quarantined, make your mind busy. Whether you're doing puzzles, uh, crossword puzzles, you know, uh, numbers or, or word finds, uh, any of those things, making your mind busy is so important. And then for your soul, allow yourself to, to settle in that, that we did not just get here. And to, to really connect in a more of a spiritual way and receive all the blessings that come from that really ground us out to be whole. 
Mm. Didi, that's so good. I love it. I just love your holistic approach to medicine. It's so helpful. And I'm taking some of those things that you mentioned, some of those uh, vitamins and supplements, but I think I'm going to be getting uh, online tonight and ordering some more of those things that you mentioned. So <laughs> thank you. That's so helpful. All right. Well, we appreciate it, Didi, and all the best to you and uh, you and, and your daughter's work at Bella. Thank you so much. And um, just again, a shout out to all of you at the Heritage Foundation that my daughter Abby and I want to uh, just know that all that you guys are doing are you're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers, and um, we're just grateful for you. Mm, Well, we appreciate that. We truly do. All right. It is Twitter question time. Last week, we asked you all to tweet us with the name of the restaurant or coffee shop you will visit. Well, hey, Virginia, I already broke those rules. I I set a bar, right? (laughs) you will visit when COVID-19 is over. Jan said Chop Bones in Lake Havasu, Arizona, because they have the best shrimp cocktails and perfect steaks. Oh man, that sounds amazing. I'm getting hungry. I am such a sucker for a good shrimp cocktail. (laughs) I have to add that to the list of places to go if I ever get out to Arizona. All right. But this week's Twitter question is, who is one person that you would like to thank for their service or their friendship during COVID-19? We want to know there's so many awesome people out there that I know have been a blessing probably in your life during this funky season. So go ahead and send them a tweet saying thank you. You can tweet at them and then use the hashtag problematic women so that we can see those tweets and read them on the show. And you get bonus points if I'm that person. (laughs) Wow, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday for a brand new edition. In the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Have a great week and weekend. Get outside, do something fun, laugh a little, maybe read a good book, and we will be back with you all next week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.